Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code GLOW. Beautiful paper things are very much Papier's thing. They're the go-to websites for stationery, invitations, cards and photo books, all ready to be personalised by you and expertly printed by them in England on a lovely high quality paper. Papier's unique collection of designs is created in collaboration with talented artists like Luke Edward Hall and Fee Greening, as well as fashion designers such as Mother of Pearl and House of Holland, and iconic brands such as Disney and Moomin. There's something for everyone. Planning a summery party? Moving home? Expecting a new arrival? Papier has beautiful designs for every occasion, but what's most exciting is that they've recently launched envelope addressing, which is a lifesaver. Just upload your friends' and family's addresses and they'll print them onto the envelopes. So head to papier.com to see their full collection and listeners can use the code THEPARENTHOOD to get 15% off their first order. Thank you to Papier. Hello and welcome to The Parenthood. Most books fall easily into some kind of category, fact or fiction, thriller, biography. And while the book we're about to talk about today fits into the parenting category, it describes in vivid and heartbreaking detail an experience that not many can imagine. At just 30 weeks gestation, Francesca Siegel gave birth to twin girls who, before she had a chance to even look at them, were whisked away into the neonatal intensive care unit to be given treatment that would attempt to save their lives. For the next 56 days, Francesca would eke her life out in NICU, trying to mother her babies, rooting for their survival against the odds, but at the same time making the kind of friendships life is all about, experiencing that conflicting cocktail of emotions of love, desperation, admiration, frustration, fear and happiness. Francesca, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled. What a book. I I have absolutely loved reading it and it was so sort of unexpected. I think it's fascinating on the one hand, but it's a great story and it's very funny. It's sort of that combination of kind of laugh out loud and sob. Your girls were born very early. Just to contextualise it, what happened? So I was um, 35, pregnant for the first time with identical twins. 
Um, and um, both of those things are risk factors. Um, and despite being a natural born pessimist, I was, I was a combination of sort of naive and um, naive and uncharacteristically positive. So I skipped through 29 um, and a bit weeks of this twin pregnancy feeling sort of pretty much invincible. I felt, I felt amazing. Um, I was enormous, I had back pain and I was completely um, convinced that everything would be absolutely fine. I was skipping around, probably horrendously smug. Um, and then one morning I wake up and I thought, oh God, the pelvic floor is gone, that's it. I've read about it and here it is, it's happened, I've wet myself spectacularly. Um, and then I turned the lights on and realized it was blood. Um, and I'd started hemorrhaging at 29 plus six. So I was taken, I went into hospital. I was kept um, sort of, I ping ponged between the labor ward and the antenatal ward. I um, ping ponged between the labor ward and the antenatal ward. Um, and eventually at 30 plus zero, um, I had an emergency C-section for um, a partial abruption and my girls were delivered. Um, and they were just over two pounds each. So just a shade over a kilo each. Um, and... Um, I think there were probably 12 people in the room for them, um, two incubators in the corner, and they just disappeared. And were you prepared for that? Did no. anyone talk to you about the fact that this might happen? Uh, I was. People had talked to me about it throughout my pregnancy, that twins were high risk and likely to come early-ish. Um, I think I didn't listen. Um, I didn't want to take it on board. Um, and then because I had an emergency C-section, but it wasn't a sort of crash, blue lights flashing, it was more you know, when the OR is next free, you'll be in, you know, you'll have them in the next hour. Um, and so someone from NICU did come up to talk to us. And that I think was the moment when this complete denial was punctured, because until that point, I was convinced everything would be fine against almost all evidence. Um, but one of the registrars came up from NICU and said, I'm going to tell you a little bit about what will happen. Um, and I think that was the moment when I thought, oh, this is these babies are really coming, this is really happening, and it's not good. And did they tell you that you wouldn't be able to touch or cuddle or hold your babies before they went up no um they just said well I think it was probably implied they said um they'll need help they'll need some help when they come out they need some help breathing and we will work on them and we'll you know we'll do our best for them we'll need you know they, they'll disappear quite quickly and how were you while that was happening because I mean I've lain there on an operating table when your baby's not there and were you calm were you freaking out what was what what did you feel like I was calm because the whole thing felt so surreal and I didn't really believe it was happening and a combination of my denial and an amazing anaesthetist I think so much of the job of an, of an anaesthetist because they're on your side of the curtain is just to trap the English in polite chit chat. We had an amazing, he was talking to us about flat whites <laughs> and where he'd first had a flat white, he'd first had a flat white in New Zealand or something. I don't really know. And I, we were, Gabe and I were there sort of nodding very politely and saying, oh yes, how interesting. Well, how do they compare to a cappuccino? <laughs> because <laughs> British politeness gets you quite a long way. So I was just going along with this conversation and nodding and smiling from my prone position. Um, and I think he got us through really. Yeah, well, they're very expert in that yeah that is kind of part of their job you know once they've administered the the pain relief they need to be there to make sure that you're okay but once it's in and working kind of their job is done um and it is i think it's i always say to women on the antenatal classes that i teach like just 
talk to the anesthetists get them to take pictures and did you take did you I mean a lot of people most people when they give birth there's cameras in the room and not the cameras but you know someone's got their mobile phone and they might be taking the odd picture do you have any pictures of when they were newborn or not no, the first pictures were um Gabe went down it, it just would not have felt appropriate or and it certainly wasn't a priority though it was really very much about saving their life um and potentially I think at that stage saving mine although I don't think I realized that um and Gabe went down they were born about 5 p.m and Gabe went down um probably around eight or nine once I was out of recovery and back on the ward Gabe went down and took photos of them then um in their incubators and those are the first photos and and so he waited with you while you had the operation and they went down so it was three hours before either of you saw them yeah and um you went down then the next day and you got a big shock didn't you when when you saw them first I don't think I knew really what to expect um were they tinier than you anticipated they were so tiny they were they were smaller than anything I could really imagine um and like in your hand how would they I mean their whole torso would fit their their I think from head to toe was sort of you know down just to the wrist really um and their skin's too fragile for clothes when they're so premature so they were naked they had tiny nappies they just had little hats on um the nurse the NICU nurses build nests for them to help them feel enclosed so they were in nests of rolled towels um you know cannula in one hand um monitors stuck all over them um CPAP masks over their um over their mouth and nose to breathe um sunglasses on for jaundice um so there was really very little of them I could see Um, and and a nappy that basically takes up most of their body and a nappy that goes up past the nipples that they didn't yet have yeah amazing amazing and did what was your reaction when you first saw them was there this I mean you hadn't been prepared for what you'd seen obviously the pictures but was there a shock of of what they looked like and I think it was just it just drove home what I had what seemed obvious but it was it was just so clear that they weren't cooked yet they weren't ready um you could see all this you could see their circulation their skin was translucent um they looked raw they their skin was too fragile for them to wear hospital identity bands so despite the all the hospital protocol and the health and safety and the you know kind of child protection legislation they weren't wearing hospital id bands they were just lying in the corner of the incubator um it drove home what they had lost which was 10 weeks of gestation and it was a while before you even held them wasn't it yeah i think it was day three or day four i can't remember um because it was too traumatic for them to be taken out of their incubators and handled um and then when you did finally handle them I mean I think every new mother feels you know out of their comfort zone holding their new baby I mean it's wonderful but I remember the first time I held my baby I was convinced I was going to drop him um and that must have been obviously exacerbated for you well I think the thing is I think that's the thing you know every new baby even full-term healthy babies every new baby is a crisis um a beautiful chaotic um, explosion into your life and and I suspect you know with my first you know these were my first children twins I I would always have felt incompetent but the thing about premature babies and, and neonatal intensive care is that you actually don't know how to take care of your children I was not the person who knew how to care for them I couldn't keep them alive I couldn't provide what they needed and I suspect I would have felt like I 
didn't know how to take care of them if they'd come at any gestation, but I actually didn't. There were at any given time three or four people in the room better qualified to care for them than I was. And that was humbling and distressing and um, and it made me feel terribly useless. Um, and that moment of having, you know, I wasn't even allowed to pick them up. Uh, they have to be picked up by a specialist nurse. They've got wires and cannulas coming out of them. Their skin is as fragile as rice paper. And so it takes a specialist nurse to lift them with all those wires and not injure them and deliver them to your chest as you lie in this chair. Um, but to hold one of them for the first time was just, that was the first moment of healing, I think. And, you know, the fact that they'd been born alive and they'd got into NICU you know that wasn't you weren't out of the woods it was a very rocky road of you you didn't know whether or not they were going to be okay for quite a long time did you no it was um and the thing about it that is so um that I was told very quickly but it's hard to really take on board until you get the first sort of backslide or up is that it's not a straight road you it's not just a sort of a day-by-day recovery and then you go home it is NICU is a roller coaster so one day a cannula, you know, a cannula running antibiotics is taken away, so they have one limb liberated, and you're celebrating. And then the next day, they have an infection, and it has to go back in again. Or, you know, they lose their CPAP mask, and they get downgraded to just a nasal cannula for oxygen, which is amazing because suddenly you can see their faces. Um, and then they have a, you know, a hard couple of days, and the CPAP mask comes back. Or, and those, it was actually those backslides that I think I found the most difficult because, uh, however much anyone warns you that they will happen. Um, there's obviously a part of you that thinks, well, you know, but maybe they won't. Well, and it's so stressful because you never know what day lies ahead of you. No, exactly. Um, and you have to go home and leave them every night. And so um, you'd go home, you have to, if you, we were all expressing milk for the babies, um, all the mums, you know, that's the one thing that you can do is feed them, not directly, but through a nasogastric tube. So we were pumping and pumping and pumping. Um, and if you want to have enough milk to feed your babies, you have to Feed, you have to pump through the night whether the babies are there or not so you go home you set your alarm for the middle of the night you pump cry maybe phone the ward and check on them and and so you were away from them and you'd wake up in the middle of the night and call the ward um, and you could call the ward whenever you want. you can call the ward whenever you want um, and the amazing night nurses would pick up although sometimes they wouldn't and then you think oh god what crisis is keeping them away from the phone um but you never knew what was waiting for you in the morning when you went in. You know, even between that middle of the night phone call and arriving first thing, um, something, anything could have happened. And did you call every night? I called every night, yeah. And how good at, pe- uh, at communicating were people? Because I think my, my eldest son went into NICU just for a, f- a few days when he was born. And I remember, I remember so well walking in and everyone said, he's fine, he's fine. He just had a punctured lung. Um, and, uh, oh, just but, a punctured lung, nothing <laughs> major. <laughs> well, in the context of this, it sort of does seem just. But, you know, obviously at the time it doesn't. Um, but I remember they were doing a brain scan and I, I just remember thinking, oh my God, what's wrong with him? What, what are people not telling me? And then they said, this is routine every baby in here has a brain scan and um I realized then and it's the advice I always give to women like just ask as many questions as you possibly can did you feel that they were good at communicating with you and and or were you good at answering questions as asking questions I think that I think that really is very very sound advice it's kind of the main advice because I I wish I could go back and and do those first days differently. I think I felt that they were only mine provisionally, or perhaps they weren't mine at all, but I might get, they might be mine one day if I behaved well. And it was quite clear that these babies didn't, 
it seemed clear to me at the time that these babies didn't need mothering. They needed high level medical care. And I sort of got it in my head that I was expected to provide that. So I felt, which is mad with hindsight, but I felt that sort of displaying my ignorance disqualified me from sort of being allowed to care for them so I didn't it's, it takes a lot of guts to say I don't understand can you explain that what does this mean um, it's quite clear very quickly that the ward round isn't really for the parents it's for the doctors to brief the other doctors and we are tolerated asking questions at the end but I should have asserted myself more and asked more questions and said well you said this what does it mean or you use this acronym and I don't understand and it took me quite a while to understand other people knew that instinctively um, either other braver, stronger women than I, or people who had other children, I think were much better at understanding that these were their children and they had a right to, um, to the patient advocacy role. Um, but it took me a long time to get there. And the ignorance was very, very frightening. But that was actually really where the other women on the ward and the friendships that you referred to really came into their own because um, I spent so much time in the expressing room. We called it the milking shed. Um, and the milking shed was really like the seat, central seat of power on the ward. And that was where I got all my answers because I'd sort of stagger in there and say, well, they were talking about, as you said, you know, my babies are having a brain scan and they found ventricular asymmetry. What does that mean? Um, and I hadn't had the courage or really the I'd been too shocked when I'd heard it on the ward round to ask what the implications were or what they would do about it. But there was always a veteran mother in the milking shed who could answer that question. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's so interesting that, I mean, I love the idea of this milking shed. I've been thinking about it a lot since I sort of read the book. And there is something that is a support, su I mean, it seems to me like the biggest support network you had but that was sort of an unintentional consequence of, you know, they hadn't thought, well, brilliant, this will be a great little room for solace for the, it was really its primarily, primary function was to ex give you somewhere private to extract milk. And yet it became, as you said, the sort of the seat of power. The seat of power and also just of, um, reassurance and connection and communion and you know you could take a pump you could wheel your pump next to the incubator and express on the ward um, but it was just so lonely um, and we were in two hospitals but the first hospital we were in the milking shed there was always someone there and it was just this incredible atmosphere of um, sisterhood and solace um, and wisdom you know I would say to Gabe you know, actually ward rounds at 10, you know, around 10 o'clock in the morning in our room. And so we should be there then. Or, you know, this is the nurse that, you know, that nurse is, you know, is really great if you want to kind of try and move things along and up their feeds. And he'd say, how on earth do you know that? And I say, well, you know, it's one of the other mums told me, obviously. 
And how long had people typically spent? I mean, you talk about at the beginning, you feel like the newbie who knows nothing. And it's almost like there's a sort of hierarchy, but I, I suppose it's a bit of a self-inflicted hierarchy. You were the one that felt like you were the newbie. How, how, how long have had some people been there on this, the veterans? Well, I mean, anything from, um, I mean, four days makes you, three or four days can makes you a veteran. Um, certainly in terms of knowing, you know, what happens when um, in a room. But, um, you know, one of the women who then became one of my dearest friends had been there by that stage, eight, nine weeks. Um, by the time I met her, someone else had been there four or five months. Um, you know, when I say veteran, I really mean veteran. But, but I also should say that, you know, 24 hours is too long in NICU with your new baby. Mm. Um, particularly if you had no sort of inkling that that might be something in store for you. I don't think I ever went to the milking room. I think I went and expressed back in my room. Oh well, yeah, you were probably still an impatient yourself. Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah. So, and I had that room, I think you talked about it, where the mother who doesn't have her baby goes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that room. <laughs> um, yeah, I remember so well the nurse kind of rushing in in the middle of the night going, um, oh, and it was to do with my antibiotics and it was it was I just remember thinking oh my god what's happened to him um and it was fine but it was just that sort of misinterpretation of that urgency of something that actually wasn't that urgent um but was just and and then you're on your own and and you're so isolated I mean in a way you've talked about how women who have their babies they go home and they're often at home alone and you didn't have this um you went you know you had this amazing village who were helping you? I mean, there's an element of did. This is a really difficult question, but was there an element that you felt very fortunate to have these these women? Yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, I think you know, would I have had it otherwise? Of course, it goes without saying. I would have, you know, in a heartbeat, had my full term babies skin to skin within minutes and taken them home the same day. But given where we were. Um, I felt immensely fortunate mm. um, and immensely, immensely fortunate in their, um, in their medical care, in the fact that we had them in a major city in a first world country with socialized healthcare, um, but also in a hospital that had um, a milking shed with, you know, these particular ergonomics that were conducive to, that had a lot of patients and um, ergonomics that were conducive to conversation and connection so I felt immensely fortunate but it but also in finding these women because um otherwise it is so lonely and so isolating and we had you know I became institutionalized quite quickly um you know I had colleagues and people to talk to throughout the day and it's that I mean I think Adrian Rich talks about um that sort of casual unscheduled companionship that um that used to be, you know, that, for example, row houses offer that high-rise housing doesn't. Um, or, you know, that sort of children in and out of each other's back gardens when you live in a terrace rather than um, a tower block. Um, it's, it's hard when you have a new baby to, to have to reach out and find pe- to seek out people and the companionship that you desperately need. And it's that casual, unscheduled interaction with people, people who just appear in your day, day after day, colleagues really, um, that is so nurturing and um, and keeps you sane really. But you know, I, did you have any friends who'd experienced what you'd experienced? No. No. So, I mean, you suddenly had a group of women who got what you were going through and not only that, but could give you advice about how to make it a little bit easier. I mean, like, I mean, that's the whole reason for antenatal classes is that there's someone that can go, don't worry about this, do this this way. And that's so reassuring. 
Oh, it was everything. I mean, we'd all given, pretty much all of us had given birth too early for any kind of antenatal classes. Um, but we just, this was, our, you know, this was a DIY equivalent. And as you said, a very specialized DIY equivalent. Um, and, you know, old friends were incredible. And, you know, the messages saying, how are you and what can I do were incredibly supportive. Um, but without an idea of what we were going through, it was exhausting to have to explain. And things changed hour by hour. And to have to keep people updated was a sort of almost another pressure. Whereas the women who were there going through something similar, first of all, you could speak in shorthand. It was like being in the army. Um, but also, they, they, if they didn't hear it from you, they saw it. You talk at the beginning of your book about how one of the first things that struck you when you went into the NICU was that there was a sort of unwritten code of conduct. Like you sort of, you don't notice other people. You're just focused on your baby. Um, and then this changed slowly, didn't it? Or did it? Did you find that you sort of, you got together in the milking room, but then you sort of slightly gave people their privacy on the ward? Yeah, or on the ward, you had to be invisible to one another. I think that remained pretty inviolable. You wouldn't sort of stroll up to someone who's sitting by their child's incubator and sit and have a chat? No, not unless you were expressly invited. If someone said to you in the milking shed, come and see me later, um, I'm, ha you know, I'm having a cuddle at three, come and say hello, you might go and sit with them, um, but never without invitation. It was, well, they, you almost didn't make eye contact with the same people that you chatted to for hours in the milking shed. It's very strange. And were there any people that on the ward that you didn't kind of make contact with because they weren't in the milking room or because they just didn't want to be a part of that group? Were there people that sort of really stood back a bit? I, th I think it, it became very clear when you walked in whether somebody wanted to talk or not in the milking shed. And actually, even some of the people that you spoke to every day, if they were having a hard day, oft sometimes didn't want to talk. Um, so I think people took from it what they needed. And you would hope that um, whatever vibes you were giving off that morning were sort of interpreted correctly by whoever walked in. You know, we all, all mostly understood that if you, were have, if, you, if you were having a hard day or your baby was having a hard day, it might be that you didn't want to sit and chat. There's one bit in the book that's quite dark, but it kind of was one of the bits that made me sort of laugh the most was when you were talking, I think, to Sophie in the in the milking shed. And she was having a conversation with another mum about pater maternity leave or paternity leave. And she said, oh, you know, Mary, this other woman whose baby was going to go home, I think, the next day. Oh, I'm, I'm really happy. Actually, we saved a, a week of paternity leave for when we're all at home. And and then Sophie said, she said to Sophie, well, what, you should have done that. And Sophie then said well, I don't know if my son is ever going to get home. And you were, you said you were sitting behind observing the conversation and you were thinking, I just want to whack this woman over the head with my book of baby names. Um, was, there, was there ever a tricky situation that, you know, some people's babies were actually fine, not never fine, because if you're a Nikki, you're not fine, but they didn't have that much to worry about versus the women who really did not know day to day whether or not their babies were going to survive? I think the the most sort of disjointed conversations about um, about their any of our children's well being were with women outside of that or, or friends outside of that circumstance. I generally think that there was. I really felt like there was almost a kind of a deliberate setting aside of any of those parenting comparisons. Um, you would drive yourself mad if you in that context. You just you can't say you know. You can't do that, you know, my baby was two weeks earlier than your baby or, you know, I've been in three times as long or, um, as you said, anyone in NICU, nobody in NICU is fine um, and and nobody should have to place their trauma in rank order. Um, and it felt to me like there was, 
we had such need of each other that it felt like there was a real deliberate choice in that space to just for kindness and sisterhood to trump everything um there were conversations i had with people always by text or whatsapp i don't think i had the energy to speak to anybody on the phone for almost the entire time they were in hospital but um there were definitely conversations i had with friends outside where i thought like oh you you don't really get this but no I didn't I didn't feel like that that instant that I described was the only time when I really thought like you are not in tune my friend (laughs) but then also with hindsight I think you know she'd been in a week and that's a long time and she was going home and she was excited and we all say things that we maybe reflect on afterwards and think oh god maybe I shouldn't have said it like that and you feel terrible but if it's said it's said and especially if you're in a situation where you can't go back and go I'm I'm sorry about what I said um probably still haunts her absolutely I'm sure I'm sure (laughs) The book, as I said before, is really well sort of interspersed with humour. You come across as someone who's got a really strong sense of humour in in a dark situation. And were you as witty when you were going through it? I don't know if I was. I I mean, honestly, when I said I did not expect this book to be funny, but it really, in in a sort of sympathetic way, there are some darkly hilarious moments, and and I think that's that's probably quite important when you're going through those dark times. I mean, I think, so. I don't know if I was, but I mean, Sophie really made me laugh. I, we made each other laugh, I think. But Sophie was very, very funny um, in, a, in a, she's got a magnificently dark sense of humour and it was exactly suited to, <laughs> to the particularly dark circumstances in which we found ourselves. Um, I mean, I think that's the other thing about the companionship of the women of the milking shed was that if anyone else had made it any sort of a joke, I would have decked them. But your um, you know, the the women who are there with you in the trenches are allowed. Um, and it helps in a weird way to be able to laugh about something. I, I had um, a little boy who was stillborn um, five years ago now. And there are times when I can kind of make jokes around that really terrible situation, but it's always in the company of people who've experienced something similar to me. Absolutely. And it's a sort of weird club isn't it but you need that because you can't like you said you know, if you haven't experienced that you can't make a joke about it I mean there's just no way you could um no and nor nor should you no exactly but you know there's that that wonderful bit where you're in the milking room and you sort of go in and you think they're having a a, a really heavy conversation about how long their babies have been in and I never knew it would take this long and then there's a slow realization that they're talking about doing up their genes <laughs> Yeah, losing the pregnancy weight. (laughs) And I just, how was that helpful, that sort of, I mean, laughter we know is so important in terms of recovery. How important was it to be able to find a group of friends who you could laugh with? Oh, it was absolutely everything. Um, And it, you know, it continued, it was pretty much 24 hours after, you know, once we'd found each other on WhatsApp, that was it. There was no stopping us really because we were all up expressing alone, um, in the middle of the night and so those exchanges um at three o'clock in the morning um and it's the same ones we would have had if we'd had babies to feed at home but instead it was us with our you know enormous hospital grade breast pumps next to us um but that it, that sort of um comradeship was absolutely everything did you ever feel guilty laughing i'm not about the subject matter but just did you ever feel guilty that you could laugh no never because there were definitely days when nobody was laughing yeah. Um, 
The friendship is obviously such an important thread in this book. Do you still keep up with the women who who you talk about in the book, who you, you know, your milking shed mates? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's four of us on a WhatsApp group um, and we have... Um, um, constant traffic although now it's about you know now it's it's amazing that you know the kind of the amount of space that that whatsapp group takes up on my phone is extraordinary but actually now it's photos and videos of these bouncing bonnie three-year-olds it's really magic um, just, you were all quite close to each other geographically weren't you yes well that's the thing about sort of your local hospital is that you do end up with you know it's not quite as close as maybe a 1980 class would have been but you're certainly all in the same you know in the same borough um but yeah, no, we all our kids see each other and we all get together every sort of other month or so. Um, and then there's a wider group of women um, who all see each other from the first hospital I was in. Um, and I see sort of, I see all of them through the ones I've stayed closest to. Um, Throughout the book, you refer to your babies as, I mean, they're obviously called baby A and baby B when they're in your uterus. Um, and But for a long time, you didn't really name them. You called them A-let and B-let. I, I think they're such <laughs> lovely names. And I love the way that the book is dedicated to A-let and B-let. Why, why do you think it took you so long to name them? I, we hadn't had any, we were, we were just so naive the whole way through my pregnancy. And we hadn't had had one conversation about names that ended after about 15 minutes and basically was just us sort of going through the A's in a baby book and laughing at the ones that we thought were ridiculous um and then we'd given it no thought at all and then all of a sudden they were there and the only thing that mattered was keeping them alive did you become attached to the names because how long were they called that oh, they and were called Aylet and Beelet for um six or seven weeks we went over the legal period in which you're meant to name your children so what happened with that did you get into trouble well no because we didn't because they were in hospital and we were sort of given a, a semi-pass by um <laughs> at the town hall but um you know I think we became superstitious about naming them um very very early on I just um I didn't know if they would live and and that was almost more of a reason to name them but in the headspace that we were in I just I just couldn't I just wanted to I all my energies were focused on keeping them alive um other friends of mine had similarly or more traumatic births and focused all their attention on naming their babies immediately so their babies would have an identity I just think everyone fell somewhere differently on that spectrum um but it just seemed so unimportant we uh, one of the things I the most shocking thing actually about the book certainly for me so far was you describe um, one of the twins having a central line put in which is a, basically a big tube to to give them medicine isn't it and food as well or? it's for longer term nutrition so when you put a cannula in um, they don't last very long they're only very you know they go in little veins in the hand or in the foot and they're not very stable they only last a couple of days um, a central line is for longer term nutrition so they run it in a larger vein um, and it goes all the way to the heart basically so it's for for feeding babies over a longer term who aren't going to be able to eat and obviously that's quite a traumatic thing to put in and you write about in the book how you realize that babies are given no pain relief when they have interventions I mean that's just very shocking I weirdly so when my son was born he had to have his lung his chest cavity drained and so they stuck a big needle into his chest and I remember being given very little information about that and that sort of slow realization that he wasn't given pain relief. Um, is that something you've then looked into? I mean, you talk a little bit in the book about how, uh, you know, there is actually a bit more data to show that babies 
potentially do feel a lot more pain than we might anticipate and but then they forget it don't they and I suppose pain is that memory well this was I mean first thing I should say is this was 2015 so I don't know if anything has changed in the intervening years um but um but yeah I did do some reading about it because I was startled um that they were not given pain relief for a lot of the procedures that happen um and there are there was for a long time there was the belief that premature babies didn't feel pain um, in the same way that for a long time there was a belief that animals didn't feel pain. Um, there's now increasing evidence that premature babies, of course, do feel pain and might feel more pain, in fact, um, even than adults do. Um, there are reasons why you might not give narcotics to babies. It's can they One of the drugs that they're all on, or almost all of them are on, is caffeine to stop them falling into um, apneas, to kind of keep them breathing, um, or kind of to remind, to prevent them from falling into too deep a sleep and thereby forgetting to breathe. Um, and obviously sedatives or narcotics would have the opposite effect. Um, and titrating those drugs in such tiny babies is obviously very frightening and very, very difficult. Um, but just because something's difficult doesn't mean one shouldn't try. Mm. Um, it's very complicated. It's a very, very complicated area, mm. um, and not one I understand enough. Um, but it was, um, it was, it was, it was also something that I thought about a lot in hindsight because um, later, when the girls were discharged and they went back to a different hospital um, for some outpatient care, they had blood taken um, and they were given numbing cream for forty minutes, and we sat in the waiting room with numbing cream on their hands before the blood was taken, and I. I had never seen anything like that. Obviously, in NICU, they don't use anything like that. They just, they just go for it. <laughs> At what point did you think you would write a book about this? Um, well, at the beginning, I thought I would write a book about this never. Um, it was the last thing I could ever imagine writing about. I've never written about myself. I've never wanted to. Um, and... Um, I certainly never imagined I would write a book in which my breasts feature quite so heavily. <laughs> um, I, and then about a year after the girls were discharged, I thought maybe I wanted to try. Um, and I started writing something and very, very quickly, it just felt so wrong and exposing of them and exposing of me. And I just thought to myself, what, why, what, what was I doing? No, 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 no. And I kind of pushed it away. Um, and then a little while after that I was having lunch with two other writers who are dear friends um, and one of them I hadn't seen since that sort of first time I was trying and she said to me um, are you still writing about the time the girls were in hospital and I said oh god no 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 I tried and it was awful and the other friend of ours said um, wait what you never told me about this tell me a bit about it and I talked to them um, a little bit about it and they just ganged up on me over the course of this lunch and basically said not only do you have to write this book, but this is your book. You must, you must. Um, you know, you must write about this group of women. You must write about the friendships. You must write about the experience. Um, and there was something about the, seeing the book through their eyes that just made me feel a new sort of bubbling excitement about it. And I left that lunch and I walked um, to the hospital, um, which was not that close. And I immediately ordered up um, all of our medical notes. Um, and from that point on, I suddenly, this it just came alive in my imagination and I suddenly thought, gosh, this actually could be something that helps other people. That This this is actually the book I wished I'd had to read um, when the girls were in hospital um, and I must write it and it's my book. Um, and I think uh, the other difference between those two attempts was that the girls were that much older. I knew a little bit more about um, 
you know this it's, it's never over when you go through a trauma like this but but certainly their active medical care was over at that stage I knew that they were going to be you know something approximating fine in fact they're very fine we've been incredibly lucky um but by the time I sat down to really write this book I felt much more secure there's a huge amount of detail in the book did you did how did you remember all of that did you did you write a diary or some of it was from a sort of slightly mad scribbled diary if you can call it that you know kind of notes I scribbled on bits of paper or the back of paperbacks or um, just random thoughts I jotted down Um, a lot of it was um, going through all our medical notes the medical notes are copious um, and um, and include psychosocial observations which I thank god I didn't really know at the time you know mum is having a hard time today that sort of thing um and I read through every page of my notes and both of their notes um and then actually whatsapp was this um, I downloaded desktop whatsapp and I read through every message with all of my friends on the ward um, with my mum with my sister with Gabe and actually everything was there because a lot of the time one or other of us would do ward round and the other one would be um, either I was pumping or Gabe was working um, and we would send each other incredibly long detailed messages about what had happened um, so and it just it was so easy to just slip back into how it felt just reading through those messages reliving it really um, so I know there will be people listening to this as there are people reading your book who are going through a similar experience and I think you know it is it's it's memoir but it's also part manual for how to deal with something that no one can ever prepare you for when most of these you know as you said you this was just not on your radar what would advice would you give what do you wish you'd known about having babies or a baby in NICU um, the first thing goes back to something that we talked about earlier I think taking ownership of them and not being embarrassed or ashamed to say I don't understand can you tell me um understanding that it is part of the NICU nurse's job to they are there to keep your babies alive but they are also there to enable and empower you to take on some of their care so even if someone on a particular shift doesn't seem very welcoming or very open to the idea it's okay to ask them to stop and teach you how to change a nappy which isn't very straightforward when a baby's in an incubator and attached to lots of wires and it may be that one of the other babies they're caring for is too sick for them to do it but they will tell you in no uncertain terms but it's okay for you to ask um and uh, another thing I wish I'd known was to uh, to ask to be there for for that. This is sort of more of a longer, t- you know, for, if babies are there in the longer term, but to ask to be there for their firsts. Um, you know, one day we came in when the girls were much better when they were in special care. Um, and overnight, the temperature of the incubators had been turned down and suddenly both the girls were in clothes. And that was... Um, presented to us like a beautiful surprise. Um, Look, they're well, they're dressed. Look what, you know, they look like real babies. But I was heartbroken because someone else had first dressed my babies. And it sounds so trivial, but chosen outfits, I never would have put them in. Um, And that was their first photo in clothes. A lot of the things I wish could have been different in our hospital experience are to do with money and funding and the NHS does what it can and is extraordinary um, and a lot of the things I wish could be different can't be simply for those reasons but something like that um, is free. Just saying to the nurses I want to be there, I want to be the one to choose their first clothes. If, if they're going to be well enough to turn the temperature down of the incubator please can I bring in clothes from home. Um, I want to be there for their first bath, I want to be there for um, things that I would have thought went without saying didn't go without saying. Um, so that I think is a big one if your baby's in for a long time. Um, I wish I had, this is just really boring and practical, but I wish immediately I'd bought 
one of those hands-free double pumping bras. Um, I spent weeks holding one of those breast pumps in place and my life would have been so vastly improved by being hands-free in the milking shed immediately. I didn't really know they existed, but that would have just been completely life-changing. I remember so well when I was pregnant with my first, seeing that, I was like, there is no way. I'm just, yeah. I'm not going to buy it. I'm not going to descend to that level. And then I used it. I was like, this is the greatest yeah. invention oh, there was. It's genius. It's absolutely genius. It is just the most time-saving, like sanity saving hideous hideous piece of kit <laughs> yeah i know whoever invented that definitely uh, uh, deserves a obe or something yeah yeah <laughs> absolutely <laughs> what about um how pushy can you be there's a bits in your book where one of the mums in 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 the in your sort of circle is if, if you sort of allude to the fact that she's much more kind of demanding of the medical staff and um, pushes them a bit more. Do you, how, how far do you think you can go? Because obviously there's a balance. You don't want them to hate you. But at the same time, if you feel strongly that your child should be given a certain type of care, then, I mean, you'll do anything for your child, won't you? I think the thing is just to understand, I mean, at the beginning I was in such awe of everybody that I thought that they could, as a just a sort of mass could do no wrong and I still feel incredibly privileged and we had just unbelievable you know we had care that we could not have paid for if we'd had unlimited resources we could not have paid for better um but um the only person and it took me a long time to realize this but the only person who was there yesterday and will be there tomorrow is you and inevitably balls are dropped things are forgotten um wires get crossed and it does take parental vigilance um, to get the best care. Lots of these things are not disastrous and wouldn't matter. But I distinctly remember the first time I really felt my own, I felt my own value there was um, when the girls were actually, I mean, it was quite a long way in because the girls were much better and they weren't having blood tests daily. They were having blood tests every other day. But I remember one of the SHOs, um, one of the junior doctors coming in and saying, you know, we need to take a blood gas. And I said, but it was done yesterday. And he said, well, it's not in the notes. I said, but it was done yesterday because I was sitting here. Um, he said, well, we need to do it again because it was, you know, I can't find it. And I said, but it was done yesterday. Um, and I, it was, that was the moment when I thought, A, I'm completely sure of myself. And B, if I can save my daughter one heel prick, I am going to dig in and, you know, by God, I'm going to do it. Um, and of course, it had been done yesterday. And just because they'd lost the bit of paper that they'd printed out didn't mean it hadn't happened. Um, and I said, it was done yesterday and it was fine. And I won that one. And it was such a tiny, tiny victory. But I just felt, oh, well, if I hadn't been here, she would have had a blood test she didn't need. And would it have killed her? No. But I, you know, there was a point to my being here and watching. Um, and things like that happen, you know, all the time. Actually, you know, we'd, we'd, the doctor said this morning that she could stop her antibiotics. So we, she doesn't need this dose or that kind of thing. It takes a long time to get to the confidence to be able to say those things. Um, but you know, it, it does come. The other thing is also, I didn't know we could read the notes. So at the end of every incubator, there's this huge folder. Um, even if you're in for 24 hours, it's there. It just won't have very much in it. Um, and the nurses write copious notes of every shift in that. And I would never have thought to touch it. But then I understood that actually it's perfectly legitimate to go and read everything that's been written about your baby in those notes. And you should. Yeah, amazing. And, and what, it, it, it's obviously quite rare for relatively rare for women for mothers to have their babies in NICU it's much more common for someone to want to support someone who's got baby or a, a babies or a baby in NICU what do you think you really needed in those those days that the, the twins were not with you at home 
Um, it was really practical support, really. I mean, I think it's the same things that most people need when they're going through any kind of family crisis. Cooking was unbelievable. I mean, my mother and my mother-in-law set up, um, and my father-in-law, in fact, set up an incredible food rotor so that we came back to a cooked meal every day, which was unbelievable. And I realize how privileged that is. Um, just, a, you know, fairies had come into my kitchen and I would go home at 10 o'clock at night and there was a roast chicken sitting there. But that was unbelievable because we would not have eaten you know, it would have, we would have eaten 100% of our meals from the vending machine rather than 80% of our meals from the vending machine. Um, so just feeding people, um, I think is huge. Um, particularly because you're meant to be expressing milk for these babies. You do actually need to take care of your own nutrition and your own health a bit, um, as much as is practicable under those circumstances. Diversion was really good after a certain point, just someone sending a really long, silly message about what they were doing without asking any questions, without expecting an answer. Um, that was key. How are you? What's happened today is not helpful because you're exhausted and you just can't go through it again. You can't relive what you've just been through and probably talk to your spouse exhaustively about and the women of the milking shed and, and, and. But someone just sending a long message saying like, you know, I had a great, you know, fantastic Godfrey biscuit at Pret this morning and, you know, the tubes are running late, but I think I might buy this from ASOS. And you know, just what I, that sort of just real life, but without demanding anything in return, I think is really helpful. And, you know, you didn't, you said you didn't really see anyone. Did you want to see anyone? I mean, if there's someone thinking, should I make an effort? I mean, obviously, people can't go to the hospital and visit because they're so afraid of infection. But would it have been helpful if someone said, listen, why don't I come to Costa below the hospital and we can have half an hour coffee? Um, or would you, did you just not want to see anyone? I think that's such a personal thing. I definitely think it's good to offer. Um, I felt like every second I was away from them, I wanted to be doing something for them. So if I wasn't sitting next to their incubators, I was expressing. Um, that was a luxury that comes with having it um, happen with your first baby because obviously people who had children at home had a totally different experience. They were rushing to take care of other children who needed them at home. Um, I think if you're there for the long term, it's incredible to have someone say, I'm going to come and sit in the, you know, in the hospital canteen for 20 minutes with you or I'll come and keep you company on the tube on the way in or that sort of thing. Um, I, it wasn't what I wanted, but lots of other people did um, see their friends in that way and found it hugely nurturing and I think just be led by um by other people's response you know by their responses and is it overwhelming having messages of people just saying I'm thinking of you or was that something that you appreciated silently no I hugely appreciated it it was it was incredible just hearing voices from the outside world um one of my friends delivered very, very quickly within the first sort of 24 hours, just delivered to the NICU reception, a bag of Julia Donaldson books and Haribo. And that was just so lovely because it was something to read to the girls. Um, and it was just sugar, which I desperately needed. And it was not saying, I'm here, can I give you something? Um, in actual fact, he told me he was, you know, he delivered it at some ghastly hour in the middle of the night because he was so desperate not to bump into us and disturb us there. Um, I didn't want to see anyone at that stage, but having someone just drop something like it was just, I felt really touched and, um, and thought of. And how did you feel about friends of yours who were having healthy babies at this time? Um, I felt, I felt as loving and supportive as my friends, as I, um, as I think I always would. I found, the heavily pregnant women I didn't know walking into the same building but going to a different floor, quite difficult. Um, 
because and that was for a long time that was really until my due date had passed because I kept thinking that should have been me that should have been me that should have been me that should have been my bump that should have been um but um I don't think it changed the way I felt about the people that I cared about um it was just with the random strangers who were just a, a real jolt and um, did any of your friends have healthy babies around the time of your due date Yes, I was completely oblivious to were them. you. Mm. And you didn't feel like they were excluding you from the news because they felt you couldn't cope with it. It's, it's a conversation I've had with other women who've, whose babies have died. And, you know, it's difficult because you don't want to be denied access to the information or excluded from this club. This is what it almost feels like as a double whammy of unluckiness. Um, so I'm just always interested to see whether how whether you want to be included or or whether, you know, actually have taking a step back is sort of easier? I mean, I think whilst we were in hospital, there was very little anyone could do to kind of make me feel worse about it. <laughs> I was living so moment to moment, I wouldn't have been, it wouldn't not have impacted sort of one way or the other, someone giving, sending me their birth announcement. I remember talking to um, my sort of milking shed friends long after we came home about how we felt about going to baby showers. Um, and there was a spectrum of how people felt about going to, um, whether it was sort of, we felt it to be inherently hubristic um, to be having a baby shower in the first place and how we felt about attending them. And some people were like sort of gung-ho and saying, well, I would have one if I was ever pregnant again. And other people were like, I just don't want, how can I get out of this? Um, and that again is just so personal yeah it is it's so interesting I felt in my experience it's, it was those little events that sort of crept up on you I remember going to my first baby shower since since my son died and it was about three or four years afterwards and I found it really hard and because it was so long afterwards I didn't expect it to be hard but it just hit me that I felt a bit uncomfortable about the whole idea of celebrating a baby before the baby was born absolutely and I'm not a superstitious person it just just given my experience, it felt uncomfortable. I mean, what would I have done with all that baby shower present? What would I have done with those photos of a baby shower if the baby wasn't here? Horrendous. I mean, it's just unimaginable. I mean, I suppose, again, not much can make things worse under no. those circumstances. But, but I think anticipating the events that might shape, you know, and again, the first christening I went to, I just remember thinking, he never got this and feeling really upset, even though it was three years after. Um, of course that sort of unanticipated you know things that throw you back and your relationship I mean Gabe you talk about Gabe a lot in the book and he sounds like he's just the most wonderful pillar of strength and there's that bit where you know you describe coming home and you've obviously just had a cesarean and you find getting in and out of bed really difficult and he'd sort of <laughs> put the milking machine upstairs for you and jumped out of bed to get you everything that you needed and to put the milk in the fridge I mean, this can't have been easy, though, on your relationship, because any kind of tough experience does impact that. But at the same time, I also believe that sometimes these really difficult experiences can bring you closer together. How, how was that for you? I think, I mean, the thing is, it was, Gabe was amazing. Um, and I'm incredibly lucky. Um, we are incredibly lucky that our relationship survived and was strengthened by this experience. But I mean, that you're kind of not really in a relationship when this is actually happening. You are just teammates in this weird new project that has been thrust upon your life we didn't really have a conversation about anything that was not an exchange of practical information about the babies for a very very long time um and um and he would be the first to admit that at the beginning certainly in the first few days um 
he was focused on taking care of me. I just had major emergency abdominal surgery and that seemed a total irrelevance to me and seemed central to him. And the person he was worried about was me. And that to me seemed callous and heartless and terrible because I wanted all that energy focused on the babies. I wanted to see him focusing all that anxiety about me on them. Um, And it took, you know, it took a while for me to be able to articulate that. Um, He had, and then it, of course, then I realized with hindsight, well, you know, he, saw his wife hemorrhaging and he thought I might die so his trauma was different I never thought I might die I was I thought the babies might die um so we lived through different traumas in those days and it took a while for me to separate those things and think you know it's not that he's being heartless about the babies he's worried about me um and someone needs to have your back yeah and of course at the time I didn't I didn't agree with that at all I just thought this was just a massive distraction and you know when he was saying you should go and lie down and I was snapping I don't want to lie down I don't want to leave the babies well actually he was probably right I probably should have gone to lie down um but um it's tremendously tremendously difficult and of course most partners have two weeks paternity leave um they're back to work very very quickly they're thrust into real life um and a totally different existence after a fortnight um and so just that alone puts you in totally different headspaces it's not easy yeah no absolutely I mean he he one of the bits that I found really hard was that he returned to work very quickly while they were still I mean it was a couple of days wasn't it we just didn't know we were it was part of the fact that no one ever really said to us explicitly in those first days and I think it would have really helped if they had but perhaps we weren't ready to hear it no one really said explicitly quite how long this road would be I don't think I really understood even when it was clearly a crisis even when they couldn't regulate their own temperatures they couldn't feed they couldn't breathe without support I still sort of thought we might come home quite soon I didn't really understand that we were in it was probably going to be months Um, and neither did he and so we had absolutely no idea what we were preparing for Um, it just kind of seemed without knowing how long they'd be in for and without knowing quite what he could do he just went back to work when he went back to work. We're very, very lucky that a lot of the work then took place in the completely disgusting cafe at the sort of in the centre of the hospital. Um, and he didn't actually have to go to an office that was very far away um, a lot of the time. But um, but yeah, we just he went back to work quite soon. We just thought that if your babies are both in intensive care, that your employer might say, listen, take the time you need. This isn't like they're sitting at home with a cold. I think they would have said it if if we'd known to ask but again that's another thing we didn't know to ask did they know how bad it was did they know how well we didn't know how bad it was Mm. I think I think it takes we we were kind of a combination of just naive and in denial I think Mm. well Francesca it's been so great to talk to you this is such an important topic and I'm so glad that you've given it a voice but not just a voice a voice that is so sensitive and funny and heartfelt and so easy and wonderful to read honestly it's one of the books I've enjoyed reading most this year it's not been a slog it's not been a a difficult thing to read I've genuinely enjoyed reading it my only regret is that I've had to read it quite fast because I'm interviewing you today and I want to savor each word because your turn of phrase is so special so I would highly recommend Mothership Um, it's out now it's not only a great book to read but it's also a beautiful book to look at I absolutely love it I love these two bright stars on the front um, girls. and you've also arrived with these amazing nails I've just seen oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're coming off now but my I am very on brand at the moment I have a full mothership 
um blue starry manicure <laughs> amazing absolutely amazing thank you so much for coming to thank us you today. so much for having me and thank you all for downloading this episode of the podcast you can uh, order francesca's book now mothership um you can also follow me on instagram i'm at marina.fogel uh, and please don't forget to subscribe rate and review us it really helps new listeners find us but from me and francesca thanks for listening goodbye Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.